Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, it's so good to see uh, many of you here this morning and uh, also to see a number of you last night at our Christmas program. And I hope that it was a blessing uh, to you as, as it was for me. Um, I'm sure I speak on behalf of many of you that this is really uh, my favorite time of the year. And there really is no place that I'd rather be than to be with God's people and worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ this season. Uh, because He is worthy to be praised. We, we are here and for this very reason because we have tasted and we have seen that God is good. And we desire to taste more this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Our text is the very familiar text this time of year found in verses 18 to 25 of Matthew 1. Just several months ago, on March 20th of this year, residents of the Faroe Islands off the North Atlantic Ocean were joined by 10,000 tourists from around the world to experience one of Earth's greatest and most amazing spectacles, a total eclipse. The phenomenon only happens on average every 375 years, visible in only specific locations. And what a total eclipse is, different from that of a lunar one, is when the moon passes between the earth and the sun. And as a result, the moon completely covers the brightness of the sun. And it causes a temporary shadow to fall across the surface of the earth. The shadow, as we know doesn't annihilate the sun, it merely obscures its light from apprehension, and it is one of the most amazing sights to behold. But there's been another eclipse that's occurred in our world today, a more important one, a spiritual one, in fact. It is the eclipse of God, as some have called it, the awesome shining glory of God, brighter than 10,000 suns, which cannot be extinguished, has nevertheless been concealed. How little of his glory can we see of it even this day? And especially we find in the church, where Christ is no longer magnified as our great God and King. He is no longer esteemed and worshipped. He is not seen as that of greatest importance. And it is no more apparent than during this time of year, at a time when the sun, the sun of God, should be shining at its brightest this Christmas season. He is overshadowed. And his glory is largely covered. And it's so true. It seems like this time of year... We can be so distracted by so many other things. Work is busy, and it just consumes so much of your time. There's school and final exams to worry about. There are countless family obligations. There are even the burdens of ministry. And so despite preparations for Christmas, Jesus is not at the forefront of our thoughts and hearts. And really, have you had a moment where you were undistracted to truly reflect upon Christ? Have you had a moment to pause from the busyness of life to come and adore him? Have you turned your thoughts to Jesus and made much of him this time of year and remember what Christmas points to? Too often, Jesus is eclipsed by lesser things. And it's reflective of the world that we live in. Because the culture wants to celebrate Christmas without Christ. Where sadly, it's become offensive to even say Merry Christmas these days because Christmas is no longer about him anymore. And so when you ask them, well, what is Christmas about? People say, well, it's about family. It's about giving. It's about joy 
and what you have. See, there has been an eclipse of the sun. And the sun of God's glory has been obscured. And we as believers, we want to see that glory restored in the church. We want to see the splendor of Christ and who he is. We want to see the sun magnified. And so my hope is that we would go to God's word this morning and we would set our hearts focus upon Jesus. To remember his coming that first Christmas day that it would cause us to worship him more deeply. That's what this service is about. That's what this season is all about. It is to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, we turn to the familiar Christmas story found in Matthew 1 to help us to that end. So let me read for us our passage beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word now, we ask for your help and grace. Show us more of Christ, and let us be changed, Lord, as we meet with you this morning, as we hear from you. Lord, have your way with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew gives us this account of the birth of Christ. And in this narrative, there are four characteristics about Christ that I want to draw this morning. And it's going to initially be a little bit more theological than usual, but hopefully it deepens our understanding of who Jesus is, how he comes, and it also answers questions that we might have relating to his birth. And so we'll get somewhere. Okay, But the first truth that you're taking notes that we learn about here is the eternality of Christ. The text begins in verse 18 with this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The word used here for birth is where we get the word Genesis. And already we have indication that Matthew's account is not some legend or myth, but is in fact rooted in history concerning Jesus. Matthew wants to tell us about his genesis, his origin story of how he came to be. But here is where Jesus' beginning is different from anyone else's. Matthew goes on to say this, that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child, Jesus, from the Holy Spirit. We love origin stories, right? Of how a person or something came to be. It's always so interesting. But what makes Jesus' story different is that his story doesn't actually begin here. There's a prequel to this Christmas story. And what's not mentioned by Matthew but is alluded to and shown elsewhere in all of Scripture is that the story of Jesus begins before time. That long before his birth, Jesus already existed. When we come before the Christmas story, we begin with the fact 
that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. That's the context for how we're to understand this account. And his birth into this world, as Matthew describes it, would be an indication of his uniqueness, of who he is. As Matthew tells us in verse 18, he tells us about the conception of Jesus. And you notice here the accent in verse 18 isn't so much on the birth of Jesus. See, because that birth was natural. But it's his conception that was supernatural. Matthew is describing for us the miraculous conception of Jesus. Where Jesus, already existing as the eternal God, he takes on human nature. And he becomes man on that first Christmas day. I'm highlighting a point that is subtle here, and yet is absolutely foundational to who Jesus is and how we're to understand his birth account. See, Matthew is impressing to us what is elsewhere taught in Scripture, that before Christ was born in this world, he was God. And there was never a time when he was not God. He always was. He is eternal. He is the pre-existing God who existed before time. The Bible establishes for us the eternality of Christ. The Apostle John, he spoke to this in his gospel. And in the opening words, this is what he says. He says in John 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The word referenced here by John is Jesus. And by way of John saying, in the beginning was the word Jesus, assumes the truth that he was already there from the beginning. Or in other words, for John to say, in the beginning was Jesus, is to say that Jesus has no beginning. And this is a quality that belongs only to God. Are you guys tracking with me? See, beginning is a word that can only apply to things created. When we think of anything that has a beginning, God doesn't fall in that category because he is self-existent. He is eternal. And it is necessary for God to be such, to be eternal in order for him to truly be God. When I was younger, I asked my uncle, where did God come from? And I vividly remember him telling me to look it up in a dictionary. I couldn't read at that time, so I didn't know the answer to this question for a long time. But it's a question that many kids have. Here's the thing. As a child asking this question, where did God come from? The simple question comes from an understanding of the concept of cause and effect. That the source of my existence comes from something. That I had a beginning from something else. See, all of us here, we are the effect of some cause, namely our parents. And they, in turn, the effects of their cause, their parents, and so forth. A tree is the effect of a seed from the ground. Rain, the effect from clouds. Cell phones and the cars you drive and appliances that we have at home are the effects of the manufacturer somewhere else across the world. The child who asked this question knows that everything around him came from something other than itself. And the child simply extends that concept toward God. And all children, when asking that question of where did God come from, is really asking a philosophical question. And he's thinking in terms of this great paradigm. And yet the child must be told that God has no beginning. Jesus always existed. And if you were to explain to him or her that if you view the entire history of the universe as a long chain of cause and effect like a stack of dominoes placed in a line, 
the finger that knocks down that first domino is God. And in this way, God is different from us because you see that finger has always been there. God exists in himself. He has no origin. He has no other cause or is contingent upon anything else for his existence. In other words, he is the first cause. He is the uncaused cause. And it is what makes him eternal. It is why he is God. And the gospel writers are applying this to our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is in very nature God in this way. He is the great I am that he declares. The one who knows no beginning nor no end. See, the story of Christmas begins there in heaven, not here on earth. The eternal God who existed before time, he would break into our time and space and he would take on human nature. Now, what Matthew proceeds to tell us is how does this take place? How does this happen? He leads us to the second point here about the incarnation of Christ. We learn here, secondly, of the incarnation of Christ. And what that is, is it's the act of Jesus, who is God, taking on human nature. We sing a Christmas song about it. Hark the herald, angels sing. And this is, there's a line from that song that says this, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate, that's the word there, deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. The, that line there captures what the incarnation means, and really, that's the essence of what Christmas is about. It's when God became flesh. Jesus, fully God, will now become fully God and also fully man. Because he takes on human nature. Do you remember, we mentioned this before, that the Christmas season is also known as Advent. And Advent simply means to come or to arrive. So Christmas is the celebration of the first advent, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, how does God, who is spirit, come into our humanity? Matthew explains how this came about. And we'll see how this process has great implications for us. We go back to the story, and in this account, we're told about Mary and Joseph. These two are betrothed to be married and yet not married. Uh, they, this, at this time in the betrothal, were sexually abstinent. Matthew tells us that they had not come together. They were pure, saving themselves from marriage, and then yet we're told that Mary was pregnant. In Israel, betrothal was much weightier than engagement in Western societies today. It was so binding, in fact, that Matthew already calls Joseph her husband. The couple had not been intimate during the course of their betrothal, and yet here Mary was found by Joseph to be with child, it says in verse 18. So you can imagine just how devastating that this was for Joseph. A righteous man, we're told. He had protected her purity. He had honored her. He had never been with Mary, wanting to save themselves from marriage, but it appears that someone else had. His bride-to-be was carrying a child that wasn't even his. So in every moral and social and legal way, he had a right to end that betrothal. And so we're told in verse 19 that Joseph sought to divorce Mary quietly. As a just man, he wanted to be merciful. He could have exposed Mary to shame, but he knew that at least a quiet divorce would preserve some of her dignity. She would bear the consequence of her action. 
but he knew that he could minimize the public humiliation and shame of it. And so he resolved to do these things. And it says that as he was pondering his decision, as he was thinking about these things, he falls asleep. And then in verse 20, we read, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel here makes a second appearance in this account, first to Mary and now to Joseph in a dream. And what the angel does is confirm what was spoken of to Mary, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That the child in her womb is none other than the Son of God. He has no earthly father, but a heavenly one. And that Joseph was not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. So why was all of this important? What's the significance of how Jesus was incarnated in this way? Here's the thing. In God's wisdom and plan, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ would make it possible for his humanity to be without sin. Christ would not inherit sin in his human nature in this way. What do I mean by that? Romans 5 teaches us this fundamental truth. And in it, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What the Bible teaches is that because of Adam's sin, every person born into this world is born as a sinner by nature. All human beings have inherited legal guilt and a corrupt moral nature from their first, first father, who is Adam. It's like a stain has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so this would apply to Jesus' situation. If Jesus was born of natural parents, then he would be born a sinner like all other human beings. And he would cease to be God. But not only that, he would need a savior for himself. And he would not be able to make atonement for our sin. The whole human race from Adam onward is born under the curse of sin. To redeem that race from sin, Christ had to be identified with our race in our humanity. He had to be man, and yet he had to be sinless himself. So he needed to at least have one parent, or he would not have shared our humanity. Now here is the wisdom of God and the significance of him being conceived by the Holy Spirit. That through his virgin birth, Jesus was able to be born without a human father. And this interrupted the transmission of sin from person to person from the time of Adam. And the Spirit's overshadowing or coming upon Mary, as Gabriel says, prevents the transmission of sin from Mary. So Mary would conceive miraculously through the Holy Spirit. Her offspring would then be called the Holy Son of God. The Lord would be born fully human and yet sinless and still fully God. This is why we just can't gloss over the virgin birth and go straight to the cross because it was totally necessary for Christ to assume a sinlessness in his humanity. The glory of Christmas is this, that Jesus, in his fullness of deity, he stepped down from the glories of heaven upon earth to a lowly, humble human, and yet also divine birth in this miraculous way. The question is, 
why? Well, thirdly, we'll see the mission of Christ. The Lord came in such a way for a particular mission. And what was that? The angel continues his announcement to Joseph, and he says this in verse 21. She will bear a sin, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What's in a name? Everything. We realize that somewhat of the significance of a name is lost in our culture, but in biblical times, a name meant everything. It spoke to your identity. It marked your purpose in life. And if this is true for man, how much more so for God? In this birth narrative of our Lord, a very significant thing takes place and can be so overlooked. The angel gives instruction to Joseph in verse 21 and says, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua. Yeshua is its Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name. And it simply means Jehovah saves. And this ultimately defined the purpose and coming of our Lord into this world. He came to save. That was his mission. The people of Israel who heard this had to have been moved in their hearts. They thought that if anyone who needed saving, it was us, God's chosen people. Their history had been marked by exile and oppression from foreign nations. Hardship was the lot of the people. But the teaching of the Old Testament pointed to the great day of the Messiah who would come and deliver them. And everything from that point forward would change. It was a promise of all that was passed down from generation to generation. But as time went on, they were further and further removed from that promise made by God. And up to this point, God had been silent for 400 years. And their situation had worsened. They were living in struggle under Rome. They had no freedom They had no promised land of their own. They didn't even have their own ruler. King Herod the Great, who was ruling during this time, wasn't even a Jew. He was appointed by Rome to rule. And that just further compounded the situation. All was not right. With every passing generation, they began to lose hope. And so when they heard this announcement that the child born would be called Jesus... Jehovah saves, it awakens something lost long ago in the past. Hope. You can imagine that when people heard that this child would be called Yeshua, for he will save, it brought to mind the Joshua of the Old Testament. This Jesus will be like the great military leader of old, the one that's conquered nations, the one that led, that, that's led our forefathers to the promised land. This Jesus was the one who they were waiting for, the one they wanted, the one that they would follow to glory. But imagine the shock when they heard the words that followed next. You will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. They were thinking, save his people from their sins. No, you must be mistaken. Don't you mean save his people from oppression? Don't you mean save his people from Rome? Save his people from the enemy? See, they didn't understand that Jesus comes to save them from their greatest need, not from their greatest want. We understand there's a difference between what we need and what we want. We can identify with that struggle, especially this time of year. Needs versus wants on our Christmas wish list or or on our Amazon list. This is manifested in a greater sense of how we relate to Jesus. It goes back to needs versus wants. 
There are things that people want from Jesus. Some people want for Jesus to give them a comfortable life. There are some who want Jesus to make them rich. Still, there are others who want Jesus to make them happy, to fix their problems, to give them meaning in life. And understand that those things can all be a result of having a relationship with him, but it's not what you need. The problem that Israel wanted to be saved from was the social and political condition before Rome. But the problem they needed to be saved from was their sinful condition before God. And that's the issue with every one of us. He is called Jesus because we needed him to save us from our sin. And until we can understand that sin is our greatest need, we will never see the coming of Jesus as truly good news. Really, this is lost upon our world. We don't really believe in the problem of sin. We don't really believe we need to be saved. Instead, we need to be helped. We don't need good news. We need good advice. We don't need the gospel. We just need ten ways to have a better life and five ways to reduce stress. And that's our problem. We don't believe in the problem of our sin. And so we have professing Christians saying that people don't need to be told they're sinners because they know they're sinners. No, they don't. They really don't. They look at the guy on the news who beheads their victims and say, that's a sinner, not me. They don't sin. They make mistakes. They have bad habits. They're a victim of their environment. But they're not sinners. And yet the Bible says they are children of wrath. And so were we. See, the grave situation that everyone finds ourselves in is that the infinite God of the universe created us, gave us life and breath and our being that we might worship him and give him the glory he deserves. But the problem is we have all belittled God. We have broken his law and we set ourselves as our own master against him. Without exception, we have sinned against Almighty God. And because He is holy and just, God will punish us for our sin in an eternal hell. We are enemies of God and we deserve His wrath. And just a footnote here, there are so many people who miss this. See, there are those who have some idea that they need to be saved. But do you know what you need to be saved from? God, his wrath, his righteous wrath against your sin. And no amount of good works can save you because it is never enough before a perfect God. In and of ourselves, we are hopeless. And that is our problem. If you understand that, you understand that you don't need good advice You need good news. What is that good news? She will bear a son. And his name is Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. This was the good news the angel proclaims. We were destined for judgment. And yet in God's great love, Jesus came into our world that Christmas day to die in our place that we might live. The penalty for sin was borne by the one who knew no sin. Jesus came as our substitute. That was his purpose in coming. See, what God would do is he fashioned and prepared a body for Jesus, his son, to have, to dwell in, that he might then offer it up as a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus was born that Christmas day to die for you and me so that we might live. 
But because he is God, he rose again on that third day. And he ascended to heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God. But here's the thing. He returned to heaven far different than when he left. For he goes back as God incarnate now. Jesus would be God and man from that first Christmas day for now all of eternity. The word became flesh, never to be separated from that flesh again. So even as he is in heaven now, God would identify with humanity forever because of his incarnation. But there is something else. He comes back to heaven with something that he didn't have when leaving the glories of heaven. You ever think about what is the only man-made thing in heaven? The only man-made thing in heaven are the scars of Jesus Christ. And we put them there. Upon Jesus' visit upon to this earth, he went back with some souvenirs to heaven. It was the scars in his hands and his feet. It was the wound on his side. And he would keep those scars as emblems, as a lasting memorial through all of eternity, to serve as a reminder to each of us that that is why Jesus came into this world, to remind us that this is how much he loves you and me. His scars tell us that. His mission from the very beginning was to save us from our sin. If you are here this morning, and if you are an unbeliever, the Lord invites for you that if you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you too can be saved. That you would receive the gift that God has given to you. So we see the mission of Christ. Fourth and lastly, we see the coming of Christ. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew informs us that the events of Jesus' miraculous conception was the fulfillment of a promise made by God in the Old Testament. And he cites specifically the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You might be familiar with the book of Isaiah, uh, maybe, okay? Uh, we've been going through it, okay, with Pastor Henry for the last six months, okay? But P.H., he did such a great job in explaining this prophecy, so I'm not going to go into the details of it or the historical context of it. But let me just summarize what's going on here as it applies to this situation. In Isaiah 7... King Ahaz is facing a threat from nations who might destroy the kingdom of Judah. And what's at stake is that if that kingdom is destroyed, the kingly line that the Messiah, the Christ, was to come from would be broken. And so God makes a promise that nothing's going to happen to that kingly line of David. And that God would preserve Israel and that the king will still come. And the Lord says this, my promise will be given to you, and it will be given through a sign. And this is the quote of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, of what our Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years later, Jesus came into a world born of a virgin and fulfilled this prophecy given by Isaiah to Ahaz. He is the one foretold who would be the king, 
who would be a descendant of David and a seed of Abraham. This king would be God himself. And so fittingly, he would be called Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Christmas is a time of year that we celebrate the coming of the king into this world. God promised that he would send the Messiah, the Christ, and he kept that promise. Jesus would come, as you know, to save sinners. He lived and died and rose again and ascended to heaven as the risen king and God. But God makes another promise, that Jesus will come again. If we were to see the Bible as a story or a movie, the initial coming of our Lord would be part one of the trilogy. And the final installment of this trilogy is the return of the king. This is the original one, okay? Jesus' death and resurrection, that wasn't the end of the story. There is so much more. But the story of redemption that is traced in the Bible and that is being fulfilled in history today, this story will come to an end and it is marked by the climactic return of Jesus Christ, our King. Scripture is not vague about this at all. Countless passages speak to this. Let me just give you several here. Matthew 24, verse 30 says this. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, with power and great glory. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. A large portion of Scripture is prophetic, and perhaps a third or more of the prophetic passages, it refers to the second coming or the advent of Christ and the events related to it. It is a major theme of both the Old Testament and and of the New Testament. History is barreling toward a conclusion. And the conclusion has already been ordained by God, foretold in Scripture. We don't exactly know when. It could be soon. It could be another thousand years away. But Christ will return. For centuries, the church has referred to the return of Jesus as the blessed hope. The return of Jesus is our hope. It is something we long to see. It is an event that we cannot wait to experience. Unfortunately, when we use the word hope in the English language, it doesn't carry the same meaning. And I've shared this uh, to a group of you before But usually when we say hope, we're referring to something we wish would happen, not something that is guaranteed to come to pass. For example, if if you were to ask me whether I think the San Francisco Giants will win the World Series in 2016, an even year, I would say, I hope so, Okay, but I'm not sure. I'm confident, right, because they won in 2010, 2012, 2014. It just makes sense that they would win again in 2016. But I just can't be sure. So I say, I hope so. Most likely, though. Okay, but uh, (laughs) However, in New Testament categories, the Greek word for hope doesn't lack certainty. The hope of which the New Testament speaks of refers to the promises God has made and the fulfillment of which is absolutely certain. There is no doubt about it. It is an unequivocal fact. So much so that the blessed hope is really our blessed assurance. We can rest confidently that Jesus will return someday. You see, his first coming was meant to be a precursor to his second coming. Christmas time is a time for us to remember the first coming of Christ but it is also to point us to the second coming. God was faithful to fulfill his promise with the first coming of Christ. 
and it is meant to give us confidence and anticipation and great expectation that he will keep his promise about the return of Christ. See, Christmas is about both comings. I love what John Piper, he says about this. And I just want to read for you what he wrote. He says this, when Emmanuel comes, redemption has only begun. To be sure, it is a magnificent only. The final blood is shed, the debt is paid, forgiveness is purchased, God's wrath is removed, adoption is secured, the down payment is in the bank, the first fruits of harvest are in the barn, the future is sure, the joy is great, but the end is not yet. Death still snatches away. Disease still makes us miserable. Calamity still strikes. Satan still prowls. Flesh still wars against the spirit. Sin still indwells. And we still groan awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We still wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We still wait for final deliverance from the wrath to come. We still wait for the hope of righteousness. The longing continues. And it extends to Christmas. This is how it should be for Christmas. I was meditating on one of my favorite Christmas songs this time of year. And it's a song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I really appreciate the lines to this fifth verse that was added. It speaks to the coming of Jesus both in his first and second advent. This is what it says. O come thou king of nations bring an end to all our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now as our prince of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come again with us to dwell. Those words are so fitting for part of what Christmas is about. The rejoicing of his coming and the prayer for his coming again. To dwell with us again. What's interesting is that many people know that there's such a somber tune to this song, and they ask whether it's appropriate as a Christmas song. And I say, yes. See, because Advent isn't all jolly and jingle bells and deck the halls, okay? We rejoice, yes, that Jesus has already come, but we know something is not yet complete. And as believers, this weighs on us because we live in this tension in the Christian life of the already but not yet. The sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. The inauguration of his kingdom and the consummation of his kingdom still to come. The satisfaction in Christ alone and the dissatisfaction that he has not come yet. And expressed in the prayer, oh come, Jesus, come. The Bible says we are to long for his appearing in this way. And my question is, is that your heart this Christmas? Do you long for Jesus? We have to remember that this is not our home. We don't live for this world. We shouldn't be so attached to the things of life here, to the here and now, to our possessions to our earthly goals because Jesus is coming again. And we need to pray that God would hasten the day in which Jesus comes and consummate his kingdom. There will be a day amidst the evils in this world that we hear about so often where the heavens will split wide open and Jesus Christ will descend in power and glory and he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives once again and he will establish his kingdom right then and there. He will set things right and he will rule with a rod of iron and he will rule with righteousness and justice and peace. That is what we long for. There is coming a day when Jesus will do that. And Israel longed for it. The church longed for it. 
The disciples longed for it. Do you long for it? We should. I believe that as Christians, we should feel a twinge of sadness every Christmas. For we have lived another year without the return of our King. A twinge of sadness every night when we go to bed, for we have lived another day without His coming again. Maybe we aren't longing for His return because we're too easily pleased with what we have in the here and now. Yes, we thank God for the gifts He's given to us to enjoy. But don't allow for life here to distract you from Christ and from praying that prayer that he desires for us to pray. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's adore Christ this Christmas. But let us long to see our Savior again. Let's pray. Father, we do look forward to that day when you will come. And Lord, your word tells us that we will recognize you because of the wounds that you bear, which reminds us for all of eternity your kindness that you have poured upon sinners that has led us to repentance. Lord, we celebrate this season your coming to save us from our sin. But fill our hearts, Lord, with a longing to see Jesus come. And each day, Lord, that you tarry, keep us faithful. That the Son of God would shine brightly in our lives. That we would continually make much of Christ for who he is and what he has done. We pray these things in his name. Amen.